Hello and welcome to Meanwhile in an Abandoned Warehouse. My name is Sophie Hope and in this episode Owen Kelly and I are continuing our conversation with the American cultural activist and artist Arlene Bombard, who is talking to us from a house in the New Mexican desert just outside Santa Fe. This may seem a change of subject, but I don't think it is. How important is the name of the group, the US Department of Art and Culture? How, how much is that a part of your programme? Let me explain why I'm asking that, because it always seems to me that in Europe, people pitch, pitch themselves as David, and although David may have beaten Goliath, it doesn't happen all the time, and people allow themselves to be placed on the back foot and find themselves defending a position in which they are seen as marginalised or extreme or whatever. And when I was talking to Sophie before we started this, and we were talking about the US Department of Art and Culture, it's like having, it's like the Movement for Cultural Democracy renaming itself the Ministry for Cultural Democracy. I presume that was conscious, so you didn't just come up with that name accidentally. So how important a part of your strategy is that naming process? The, um, Adam Horowitz, he's the chief instigator of the USDAC, he had the idea first, an idea. He was working on a project in, in Bogota, on a Fulbright, and he had a brainstorm. They had a Ministry of Culture, why don't we? And he went to a print shop and had big posters printed up saying the U.S. Department of Arts and Culture and came back to the States and was traveling around interviewing different people and we connected and I, uh, some of my, my work, new, uh, new Creative Community, The Art of Cultural Development, that book had a lot of stuff in it that he was trying to see if it existed and we decided let's, let's hook up and see if we can do this. So he brought the name um, and his idea was uh, essentially performative, you know, that, that you do, you perform the thing that should be happening in order to show how it could be happening. And I, I really liked that idea, so I was fine with it. And we, if you look at the website, there's, a, you know, a certain amount of, like, formal trappings. We have bureaus and, you know, and, and outposts and that kind of thing. And one of the um, perks of being on the National Cabinet or on, in the group that that uh, does the work is that you get to make up your own title, which is why he's chief instigator and I'm chief policy wonk and, and Makani Temba is minister of revolutionary imagination and Lillier is urban alchemist and so on and so on. Um, I really, really like uh, the frame. We get some pushback from people. I mean, we have to say all the time that um, uh, cultural citizenship knows no borders, no boundaries, requires no papers because the word citizenship is pretty toxified, you know, in, in, in this particular version of America. But, um, and some people hate government, and, you know, there's definitely a, a gigantic sort of uh, anarchist, um, I would call it primitive anarchism as opposed to a sophisticated, you know, anarcho-syndicalism or whatever, but among younger activists. And the feeling is anything that has a structure, anything, you know, that, that, that appears to want power. And this makes me very sad because uh, I think that's a real weakness of, of the left as I know it, that people would rather be correct than hold power and they would rather, um, they, they somehow have uh, the belief that um, 
uh, if you have any structures, if you if you borrow any of these models, if you try to perform these things, you'll be corrupted by it. And to me, that dooms you to being utterly powerless forever. So, can I ask you one last question, Arlene? Um, the political situations have drifted since the 80s radically, both in Britain and America, and indeed in Europe. When we spoke in the, in the 1980s, we thought there was a lot of point for us to work together, to come together. There were things we could do to strengthen each other's work. Is that still the case, or has the situation changed so that your position bears little relationship to ours, etc.? Is there still stuff that we could work on mutually, do you think? Totally, why not? You know, I, I mean, I don't, I don't know what the... I don't know what the basis for saying no would be. <laughs> it, feels, it feels like we need to keep, I mean, I was happy when you got in touch with me, you know, like Francois Matarasso and I, you know, we, 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 we engage with each other. Ed Carroll, who was in Ireland, but now he's in Lithuania. You know, we've been carrying on as much as possible these conversations. Um, more like friends, I guess, not, you know, not so much with a formal organizational agenda but um, it's you know the challenges that we're addressing are global challenges and mm. it's silly for us to fall even inadvertently into the idea that only the other side should have all their global alliances and conversations and things yeah something um, uh, that's going back to the policy um, on the uh, USDAC 10-point action plan. Um, uh, what's really exciting about that is the overlaps with the, the current um, Movement for Cultural Democracies manifesto, um, which I can send you the link to if you've not seen it, but, but that's sort of a, another resurgence of cultural democracy manifested, yeah, manifested through... Um, uh, mainly the kind of um, momentum movement the, of, which is the, the left wing part, sort of part of the Labour Party <laughs> at the moment in the UK so there is there, I think because there's a little crack in the system where there may be opportunities to influence policy and um, work on those structural kind of aspects there's been um, yeah I think people have sort of seen that little crack and we've, we've got basically you know those, those, those of us on, a, on that um, left part of the spectrum of the left have <laughs> been quite excited about those that, that chance to do something um, so I think there's possible ways that we could learn you know certainly learn from you guys and develop some exchange or something around around exploring the you know the fact that we've kind of independently come up with these 10 point plans and, and uh, manifesto type proposals to affect change um, is no perhaps no coincidence and I was also going to ask as well about, you were just mentioning the kind of global networks and sort of transcultural aspects. Do you have, um, how do you, do you have links in other parts of the world that, that, um, that you're drawing inspiration from and kind of connecting to as well that you want to share well, with us? I'm just wondering, yeah. you know, where, you know we, we, we kind of get a bit stuck in our mindset I think in in the UK as to what's so important here but actually you move outside the UK and it's really not that significant or important um, so yeah we, I think we have a, we suffer from that um, 
inward looking <laughs> notion. So it'd be good to hear I, what your Sophie, I'm gonna tell are. you a story but Owen will edit it out of the podcast I imagine and, and hope. But I just remember when Owen came to visit us in California and we went to a redwood forest and his little boy, who must be an all grown up boy with many parts to his life, um, was standing in the forest looking up at this gigantic redwood tree and in his little piping voice he said, you know, when we're in England we think our trees are quite tall, but really they aren't very tall at all. And that, what you said just reminded me of the need to get out of our comfort zone to have a different perspective. And he was so cute and he did that. <laughs> um, so, you know, I when I, when the Movement for Cultural <laughs> Democracy Manifesto thing came out. Uh, I immediately like wrote to whatever the info thing and said, let's connect. Nobody answered me, so I'd totally be happy to be in conversation. We just, my attempt to do that didn't happen. The, the action items in um, your manifesto are much right. more art funding, mostly much more art funding oriented than our focal point, and you heard my critique of that, you know, a, f a few minutes ago. So, it would, and and I think we we totally want to engage, and we don't want to get too much into um, treating art funding like the be all and and end all. So so that would that difference, you know, that that framing difference would obviously be part of the conversation. Love to have the conversation. Um, we have not, we keep thinking we should do ambassadors or like, you know, whatever the diplomatic missions or whatever, because there's lots of people from other countries use our material, um, all the Anglophone countries, but it's amazing, I mean, how many downloads we get from Finland and like Poland and, you know, just all, all over the globe. And as I, I'm, I've been the principal writer of the guides and toolkits and things that we've generated, and the most recent one that I did was called Art and Well-Being Toward a Culture of Health. Also free, people can just go to the site and click and, and download that. Um, so uh, that is the most international publication we've done. And we have examples, mostly from Anglophone countries, but from other parts of the world too throughout that and it's been more like that that you have the one has the ability you know because of the internet and everything to search and make contact with people who you would never come across otherwise and give um, give their work some visibility we've gone we've done quite a bit of talking and brainstorming and stuff with folks in Australia but um, it just hasn't it hasn't turned into any you know concrete project but they, the Australians have done so much, uh, both for that uh, guide that I mentioned and a prior one called um, Art Became the Oxygen, an Artistic Response Guide, which is about things that uh, artists and creative organizers can do in natural or civil yeah. disaster. Um, the Australians have had some com many comparable disasters, and so we, we've had... Uh, We've had a good exchange, especially with the group Feral Arts and people in in South Australia, um, Queensland. But no, we haven't made it formal. And you know, I'd love to see some kind of global cultural democracy convening or something. That would be certainly interesting. Yes, and I just say for the record that I'm completely on board with your critique. One of my uh, disappointments with the movement for cultural democracy 
has been that it's it does seem to be uh, responding to a dialogue put out by the Arts Council of England rather than trying rather than successfully generating a conversation of its own and I think that's important I think I think everything you said about the the problems of maximizing the position of the artist and making it a we need more funding movement that just simply doesn't go anywhere and I think those problems keep popping up again and again and again and I think it really is important that uh, in fact I was saying this at some point either in a previous podcast or in a the discussion re we had recently that it, there is a need to have a position on uh, universal income and to have a position on universal childcare and those kind of issues because without those the possibility of cultural democracy doesn't exist it, essentially it involves some degree of free time and if people don't get free time if they're in a permanent situation of servitude for whatever reasons then of course cultural democracy is never going to interest them but how we get to that position who knows well we do we get it we get it through a long long conversations in which we in which we don't give up I suspect and which we and that's why I think it's important to have stake our own claims in the sand rather than simply being a responsive set of organizations absolutely I mean I think that was one of I mean I think that's one of the the um, I need to read them again all, uh, properly, but I think that was one of the, own, the, the only overlaps, explicit overlaps in the two ten-point kind of manifestos, was the, the call for UBI. So I think the, I think the, um, yeah, the, 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 you know, the, the sort of discussion around UBI from different perspectives is, is utterly entwined in all of this in terms of time and resources redistribution, um, and I think that. What's, I think that's so interesting in terms of the histories of how and why cultural democracy discussions have been um, had and how and where they may have been threatened is because of the loud voice of the, the sort of state of exclusion art, you know, the art world or artists sort of claim. So I think that how can we learn from past, uh, your, your kind of past experiences of, of how to avoid those traps because um, you can just see it happening again and again. It's on like hit repeat because you know the, the you know yeah these are the, the arts mm. are marginalised anyway, but they they're still very loud voices. So even and the loudest voice often I've found is around um, claiming state of autonomy for artists. You know, leave us to do what we know how to do, what to do best, and and I guess that for for, for those of us who are, who kind of feel more comfortable within that framing of cultural democracy rather than democratisation of culture. Um, I just, yeah, it's always annoyed me and frustrated me, that dominant voice of, of artistic, that leave the arts to do what they do best in an, an autonomous way kind of argument, but it's so loud and so dominant, so <laughs> constantly up against that as well. And whether I should just maybe just need to ignore it and do something different. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, when you when you get in the discourse around individual artists, that's totally true. Um, but the loudest voice over here, and I'm guessing it might be over there too, is the institutional voice that says, we get the lion's share of the funding, we are culture, by preserving it in these institutions and presenting it, you know, over and over again, um, we're performing this really important function for the society, and that's why we deserve most of the money.
And that argument has been successful for those groups based on how the pie is sliced so far. So one of the things that I think doesn't get engaged in that conversation about we're artists, we're free, we should just do what we want, and we're institutions, we're you know, performing the important work of preserving culture, is how is power being manifested in that dialogue? Because I think on one of your prior podcasts, you talked about this notion of um, is community arts art? that that's an evergreen question, right? Just like community arts groups are always considered emerging in American you know, uh, grant guidelines and stuff like that. So who's, who's to say? You know, I give all these talks about this stuff and often there's someone like at the back of the room who stands up during the Q&A and this person works for a foundation or a government agency or something. And they say, um, well, you know, but a lot of this community arts work isn't very good, is it? I mean, it doesn't have you know, the, the really high, the, the best, you know, the key words here are like standards, excellence, quality, you know, people just say these things as if they have some objective meaning. And, and you know, they look at me like I'm going to be embarrassed and like have to back off of, of what I'm saying. And I say, you know, I went to your museum and a lot of the work in there wasn't very good. Have you noticed that? And even if you are judging by the criteria of the people that you've authorized to have judgment, like critics and stuff like that, half the stuff isn't very good, right? They find something wrong with it. It doesn't go up to their standards. It doesn't seem truly excellent. So, you know, not only is, is uh, excellence or whatever you want to call it subjective, and, you know, not only is it multifarious, not just one, one idea of it, but the critical eye that they feel entitled to turn in the judgment that they feel entitled to make on this work that's manifested collaboratively by people where they live, that when does that eye get turned back on them? Aren't we giving away our power if we don't turn around to them and say, you don't do, you're not doing what you say you're doing. You don't deserve this shit. You know? I think one of the it, I think one of the points there comes back to what you were talking about earlier about language. I think it's not just that they have the power to give out the money; it's that they've managed to gain the power to describe things. And it's not just that they've managed to gain the power to describe things; they've also, through that, gained the power to hold back people's expectations. Example, somebody last week said to me, how did you get the money to fund these podcasts then? <laughs> and I said, what? And they said, well, you've got a response. They were, they were wanting to argue about the responsibility that we have for these podcasts. And I was saying, look, this is an intervention by Sophie and I who have amazingly little power by any standards in, in any of these national or international debates. And we're doing this, and they say, yes, but, but you've got funding to do it, so how come you've got the funding? And I was trying to point out that we're, we're using two, two 100 euro recorders, audio recorders, an old laptop, and Audacity free software, and that's it. But my point isn't that they were accusing us of that. My point is that they couldn't somehow imagine that we could be doing this without having been given funding which we'd applied for from somewhere and been granted essentially permission to do it. Or oh, commission, yes. The fact that we were just 
doing it because we we sat in a bar and talked about the idea when we were at a conference in Manchester when we first met for the first time physically. It just doesn't occur, and that I think is, is crucial. The fact that people simply have possibilities erased from their mental vocabulary almost, if that's not a mixed metaphor. And I think that's, part, that, that's partly why I was asking about the, the name of the organisation, the USDAC. It's that that seems to me to be a deliberate statement to reclaim some of that. that and I think that's, that's both useful and important. Mm -hmm. Because it isn't in the end, even just about artists and whether they're claiming the money, it's about the fact that people don't get to understand the potential of cultural democracy because they don't allow themselves to see what the possibilities actually are. Mm-hmm. And, and this is a... F I'm sorry. It, and it's a fundamental problem in terms of how people create the narrative they use to understand their universe, right? Because when, when we look at um, isolate any specific element of cultural policy, like telecommunications policy, it's such a good example. Because like, if you go into a classroom of children and to them, television's like a rock or a tree. It just, I mean, this is, this is Freire 101, right? That it, it just came to be there, it's, just ma it's magical thinking, you know, you just plug it in and it goes on and somehow this stuff gets on it and I can choose to watch or not, or, you know, and that's my whole agency in relation to it. And just having a conversation with them where you say, here's how television developed, here's how it's regulated, here's how it could be, breaks their thinking open. But this, you know, I think the dominant cultural stance to, to borrow from Freire again is internalization of the oppressor, internalization of the view of the rightness of the current arrangements and the view that the way things came to be was as it should have been and the view that there's very little we can do about it. And so, so it feels like, you know, you know the metaphor that, that often occurs to me is, are we working on the software or the operating system? Because these underlying um, beliefs, erroneous beliefs about people's powerlessness and passivity are built into our operating system now. And we, we need to change that. And this, I mean, culture, because it encompasses everything, is one of the great arenas, you know, in which to do this work. But it doesn't, even, it doesn't stop with culture. I agree. I agree totally. Shall we stop there, then? I sure, think. I could talk forever. This is so fun. <laughs> well, we might, do it, we might do it again, then, at some point, Arlene. We might come <laughs> bothering you with our microphones again. Yes. <laughs> anytime, anytime. Okay, thank you very much. Of course.